Everything's very sensitive. Acts chapter 21, verses 38. We'll start there. Paul is now standing in the palace. We're going to talk about that in a minute. He is now giving what sadly is called his defense because he has to defend his work declaring the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this is a defense when it should be a wonderful blessing to everyone. He's already been beaten. He's been taken into the castle. He's been brought out of the temple. And he picks up, actually, we're going to be, let's start verse 39. But Paul said, I am a man which am a Jew of Tarsus. A city in Cilicia, a citizen of no mean city. And I beseech thee, suffer me to speak unto the people. And when he had given him license, Paul stood on the stairs and beckoned with a hand unto the people. And when there was made a great silence, he spake unto them in Hebrew tongue, saying, this is where we left off last week. This was our cliffhanger. This is what he said. Men, brethren, and fathers, hear ye my defense, which I make now unto you. And when they heard that he spake in the Hebrew tongue to them, they kept the more silence, and he saith, I am verily a man which am born, which am a Jew born in Tarsus, a city in Cilicia, yet brought up in this city at the feet of Gamaliel, and taught according to the perfect manner of the law of the fathers, and was zealous towards God as ye are all, as ye all are this day. And I persecuted this way unto the death, binding and delivering into prisons both men and women. And also the high priest doth bear me witness, and all the estate of the elders, from whom also I received letters unto the brethren, and went to Damascus to bring them which are there bound in Jerusalem for to be punished. And it came to pass that as I made my journey and was come nigh into Damascus about noon, suddenly there shone from heaven a great light round about me. And I fell unto the ground and heard a voice saying unto me, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And I answered, Who art thou, Lord? And he said unto me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom thou persecutest. And they that were with me saw indeed the light and were afraid, but they heard not the voice of him that spake to me. And I said, What shall I do? Lord! And the Lord said unto me, Arise, and go into Damascus, and there it shall be told thee of all things which are appointed for thee to do. And when I could not see for the glory of that light, being led by the hand of them that were with me, I came into Damascus. Paul is now on the steps of this Roman castle. And basically here, what we saw last week, is there he was approached by the Christian Jews, and they wanted him to honor his stand as a former, well, not well, maybe not just as a former Pharisee, but as a Jew that obeyed the law. That was he was he was confirming the authenticity and the obedience and how important it is to keep the law. And so after he went through this Nazarite vow, then all of a sudden after that, these Judaizers who were Pharisees and Sadducees grabbed him. They put, he was in the temple, they brought him out, and they were beating him, they were going to scourge him hard, it was going to happen again here, and basically what happens is they take him and they grab him and says he was born, which means he was lifted above everyone because they were going to tear him to pieces. 
And he winds up, the, 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 it's the Roman captain, Claudius Lysias, and the centurions, the captains, saved his life. It was the Romans. And they don't let him go, but they shackle him. And there he is, once again, bound, led into the castle back in verse 37. And then he says, may I speak unto thee? And they accuse him of being an Egyptian, being one of this Egyptian marauder that at one time had killed thousands of people and they and he was supposed to have been dead. And they say, Paul's this man. And they're trying to do everything they can to accuse him. So Paul comes back and he starts and he starts giving a history of himself. And I believe that's one of the greatest things you can do as evidence for yourself when you're trying to defend yourself in a situation where you're wrongly accused. You need to have a history. That's why history is so important. We need to know history. It repeats itself, and it's very important. And Paul goes back and he speaks about the history of what actually happened to him on his conversion. And he's not using this just as a defense. He's using this as a witness to tell everyone there about Jesus Christ. But he says, I was not from a mean city. He said, I was, I was taught in Tarsus. It was a city in Cilicia. And I was a free man. He was not a bond slave at the time. He was not some, uh, living under, un, under some kind of, of intertestamental, like Jewish diaspora that was under some kind of servitude. He said, I was a free man and I was free to have an education. And he said, I had a wonderful education. And he said that I was, I was not a mean man. I was from a free and a very wonderful city. And it says when he had given him license, Paul stood on the stairs and beckoned with the hand of the people. So I guess the question is right now, I think it's important to ask, where is he? What, what about, I mean, what is this Roman castle? Where's Paul standing? Paul's standing there and he doesn't have much of a pulpit, but he's standing there after what happened to him and he's talking to them. This is where we left off last week. Well, Paul is now on the steps of the Roman castle. It's, it's actually referred to as the Tower of Antonia, where the Roman soldiers kept garrison. And I have a little preview here, a little thing to go over to tell you a little bit about this castle, where we can uh, learn a little bit about it. Now on the north side of the temple was built a citadel whose walls were square and strong um, and of extraordinary firmness. This citadel was built by the kings of the Asimonian race, who were also high priests before Herod, and they called it the Tower in which were reposited the vestments of the high priest, which the high priest only put on at the time when he was to offer sacrifice. But for the tower itself, when Herod, who, when Herod, who considered himself the king of the Jews, had fortified it more firmly than before, in order to secure and guard the temple, he gratified Antonius, who was his friend, and the Roman ruler, and then gave it the name of the Tower of Antonia. And this is important because Herod was had a lot of money and he had rebuilt much of a lot of Jerusalem and Rome. He had put a lot of money into the buildings before he died and he considered himself the king of the Jews. He did. Now I have to remember that the polity of, of Rome, Caesar himself hated Herod. Hated Herod the Tetrarch, hated them and did not want to make them king, but because there was an alliance there, they, the Herods were all given the power as if they were kings, but they were never coronated. They were never real kings. And Herod here had built this tower. And some of the, some of the buildings that still are there today that he had had a hand in building, they're incredible. And going forward, and this is from Josephus, 
Now as to the tower of Antonia, it was situated at the corner of two cloisters of the court of the temple, and that on the west and one on the north. It was erected upon a rock of 50 cubits in height and was on a great precipice. It was the work of King Herod, where he demonstrated his natural mag magnanimity in the first place. The rock itself was covered over with smooth pieces of stone from its foundation, both for ornament and that anyone who should either try to get up or to go down it might not able to hold his feet upon it. This is how great that this massive edifice was. And this is where Paul is. He's on the steps and he's giving his defense. So the chief captain comes to rescue Paul. And this is to take Paul's case out of the hands of the Judaizers and into the Roman courts. This is why he was detained by the Romans and he was not set free. You would have thought they would have grabbed him. They would have said, hey, he's a man of God. He was a Roman. His father was a Roman and he was born in no mean city. He had a great education. They didn't really believe. They didn't know how much of an education he had. He was a man of prodigious knowledge, which we're going to see here in a minute once again. But the question I have this morning, when we get into Acts chapter 22... Basically, the first 18 verses are recapitulate and reify Acts 9. So, if basically, it's almost word for word, but there's some extra evidence in here as opposed to Saul's conversion in Acts 9. So, why don't we just go past it all and just go forward in Acts 22 and forget about it? Well, I've listened in the message many times over the years where you get into a familiar uh, like, like a familiar recapitulation or like uh, some of the same words or the very same kind of text and they just breeze over it and say, well, we've already gone through that. I don't think we should do that. The Lord put it there for a reason and I think we need to look at it again. Number one, it's been a long time since we've looked at this. And number two, there's some other evidences and some other things that happened to Paul on this conversion, which is, it's incredible. I can, I can tell you personally, I have remembered the conversion of Saul as long as I can remember knowing the Bible, which I was about four or five years old. And it's always been fascinating to me what happened here. Here, Paul had been beaten. The Judaizers had him. The chief captain had taken him. They chained Paul. They don't let him go, showing their power over the Judaizers. And here, Paul, no doubt bleeding, possibly open wounds, maybe swelling, He's, they, they take him up and he's on the steps. He's detained, carried into the castle or borne overhead so that his body would have been probably in very bad shape. But we finished off last week reading, and I think we should read it one more time for those that weren't here. John chapter 15, verse 19 to 23. I asked Brother Dave Heater if you could read that. John 15, verses 19 to 23. Christ had warned of this. And here it is. Remember, this is a prophecy that's given by Agabus and the four daughters of Philip back in chapter 21 saying, Paul, if you go to Jerusalem, you're going to get it. They're coming after you. They want you to be dead. They want, you to, they want to kill you. So, Dave, you have that? Go ahead.
Thank you, Dave. That's a very profound uh, series of scriptures where the Lord made this very clear that if you are of the Lord, you're going to be hated, you're going to be persecuted, and if you're of the world and the world loves you, he that believeth is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, for he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And we read that in John 3, I think that's verse 17. And Christ made it very plain, he that hateth me hateth my father also. That's a bad place to be. That's a very bad place to be, and I think that's a real problem with many we see today. Paul, this, Paul knew this. He knew that he should be hated. He would be hated, just as Christ was. Acts 21.13, we read, Then Paul answered, What mean ye to weep and to break mine heart? For I am ready not to be bound only, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. So, remember, many of the Jewish democracy cried one thing. They were crying out. What were they saying? Away with him. Away with him. What, that, and it's the same way of, it's basically the same way of the same, same way that was said about Christ. Crucify him. Crucify him. When Pilate said, who should I release to the public? Who should I let go? Should I let Barabbas go? Or should I let Christ go? And they all cried out in a Hebraism form in in a second degree. Twice they cry out, crucify him, crucify him. And you can imagine that the crowd was crying out, away with him, away with him. We want him gone. We want him dead. But that's not what happened, is it? You see the providence of God working here? how they all wanted him dead, and all of a sudden, he stands on the stairs in this castle, he begins to speak, and everybody shuts up. That in and of itself is incredible to think of how the Lord shut the mouths of the lions, and they let him speak. They let him give the gospel. The Lord wanted that gospel to go out, and the Lord shut every one of their mouths, just like as we read last week. Who did we talk about last week? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Remember them? They, I mean, they stood up. Daniel 3.16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we are not careful to answer thee in this matter. We're not even going to think twice about it. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of thine hand. But if not, be it known unto thee, O king, that we will not serve thy gods nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. And that is our stand as a Christian. We will not worship the gods of this world. We will not worship this abortion thing coming up, this referendum next week, next, next year, I mean, by the people. We are not going to worship and turn this rainbow flag that the Lord put over the throne. We're not going to bow down to it and enable sodomy. We're not going to do it. As Christians, we are going to serve God. And it doesn't matter how exposed we are and how much we're called terrorists, we're going to honor the Lord. That's what our job is as Christians. We see how important that is and how the Lord wants us to, you know, wants us to stand up for Him. I, I think of the speech of when I was thinking of Paul standing on the castle. I wrote this down. I wanted to read this. Think of Martin Luther and he's standing in front and he, he gives his speech and he says, since your most serene majesty and your highness require of me a simple, clear, and direct answer, I will give one. And it is this. I cannot submit my faith either to the Pope or to the Council because it is clear that they have fallen into error and even into inconsistency with, inconsistency with themselves. 
If then I am not convinced by proof from Holy Scripture or by cogent reasons, if I am not satisfied by the very text I have cited, and if my judgment is not in this way brought into subjection to God's Word, I neither can nor will retract anything, for it cannot be either safe or honest for a Christian to speak against his conscience. Here I stand. I cannot do otherwise. God help me. Amen. What a bold speech that there he was, just like Paul, Martin Luther, standing by himself. No help, nobody, no lawyer. They didn't even give him a lawyer. He had no defense other than Christ. Christ was there with him, just as we read Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They went all the way into the fiery furnace. They were literally standing in the middle of it. What does Nebuchadnezzar say? Wait a minute. Didn't I throw three in there? Lo, I see a fourth, and it's the Son of God. And there he was. Paul goes, Paul goes back to Saul. This is his defense. He says, I'm born a Jew, inherited right to become a Roman citizen from his father. Acts 22, 27. Then the chief captain came and said to him, tell me, art thou a Roman? He said, yea. That alone holds a lot of massive weight. His father's a Roman. And they're still detaining him. He, they had no right to do that. If you had a Roman, if you were a Roman, they had no right to beat you or to, or to do what they did to him. He says, I became a Pharisee, a Pharisee of the Pharisees. Acts 23, 6, but when Paul perceived that the one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, men and brethren, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee of the hope and the resurrection of the dead I am called in question. So he not only has on this one hand a defense that he's a Roman, he's also said I was a Pharisee. But it's fascinating because he's appealing to the Jews. The Romans are there basically just to carry out the inevitable execution that the Pharisees wanted and the Judaizers. So what Paul does is he appeals to the Judaizers. And he talks, starts telling them about his past. And he said, I was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. And then he starts talking about his education. You see, we just read in chapter 22, verse 3, I am verily a man which am a Jew born in Tarsus, a city in Cilicia, yet brought up in the city at the feet of Gamaliel and taught according to the perfect manner of the law of the fathers and was zealous towards God as ye are all this day. Anybody remember who was Gamaliel? Anybody? Matthew. Yes. He was very important. Anyone else have anything to say about Gamaliel? How many degrees do you think Paul had? I mean, there's actually a count of uh, generally how many degrees he possibly had. If you were to look at PhDs and degrees in this day, about how many he would have had, he would have had probably two. Does anybody remember what he was, what, what they would have kind of been in, what, you know, what his expertise was? Yes, Lowell's one of them. What was the other one? Right. It was, right. So the two that he had was he's the equivalent of a PhD in theology and in law. That's where he was the most well versed in. So he's standing there on both levels as what he needed was theology and law. Those are the two that those are the two major defenses that he has, and he puts it right at him. He's standing there and he tells them, my mentor and my instructor 
who in the day was very well known by all the Jews, I was trained under Gamaliel. That held a lot of weight. It should have held a lot of weight. It's very important. He said, I am the Saul of Tarsus, a city in Cilicia, which was a free Roman city where Saul was a free man. And he had honor. He was a scholar, scholar. He was a man of prodigious knowledge. Most educated Jew in Palestine in the day. He studied, studied under Gamaliel, he was the, who was the most famous rabbi in Judaism and theology and law. Paul knew over five languages, equivalent of two PhDs. Paul is very brilliant. He would have been educated in the schools of Tarsus, sent to Athens to study philosophy and poetry of the Greeks. He would have been then sent to the university, quote-unquote, of Jerusalem, where he would have studied Old Testament history. And at least he's right about that. He was an incredible Old Testament historian, which all the Jews were supposed to be. Christ asked many times. He said to the ruler right there, Nicodemus, he said, haven't you are a ruler? Don't you know the Old Testament? He said to Cleophas, he said to his friend on the way to Emmaus, don't you remember the writings of the Old Testament and what was supposed to happen to the suffering servant of Israel? So here's Gamaliel. Who is Gamaliel? In Hebrew, his name meant God is my recompense, or it means to make amends. Gamaliel, the most prominent professor of the day, listens to Peter, most respected and most famous rabbis of the day. He was a great scholar, leading man of the council, a famous man of the Sanhedrin, a teacher of theology and law, master tutor of Saul of Tarsus, who right now is at the time as he was under Gamaliel and he was a Pharisee, Paul, who was Saul of Tarsus, was public enemy number one against Christianity. He would have been right there with them trying to go after, if he was still a Pharisee, he would have been there trying to bring in and trying to punish Christians. Gamaliel sat on the executive session which made very large decisions for the entire Jewish religions. When you see the Sanhedrin and the Jewish council, Gamaliel was part of that. He was very important and he was very well listened to. His father was Rabbi Hillel, the leader of one of the two great schools of Jewish legal interpretation. Hamai and Hillel were two influential Jewish rabbis whose commentaries on the Torah shaped Jewish theology and philosophy for hundreds of years and to this day. The Torah is still very much respected and honored today. And, and Gamaliel had a lot to do with that. The Samite and Hillelite schools were the two dominant approaches to Jewish law during the years of Jesus' earthly ministry. And we see how, I'm just trying to build a case here, how important this man Gamaliel was. Paul sat under the, the, the teaching according to tradition. Shammai was a Pharisee who taught in the years just prior to Jesus' birth. In his commentary on the law, he emphasized the need for temple rituals. And his interpretation is characterized as a strict, literalistic, and, and, and Israel-centric. The school that followed those interpretations are referred to as the Shemaiah interpretation of Jewish law. And the difference between Shemaiah and Gamaliel is Gamaliel had a softer spirit and a far more educated and a far more softer way of handling people. He was against punishment. He was very much against executions. Remember back, I think it was Acts 5, when we saw Gamaliel and, he, and we were talking about an event that had happened and he had said, well, if this be of the Lord, let it happen. He, was afraid, he really was afraid of God. He really had a real concern about the providence of God here. 
But was it interesting with many of those that are, and we can see this today in education, and I've seen, I'm Pastor uh, Olson could maybe concur with this, seen many that have sat under semin seminaries that wind up young men who get hooked on their seminary professors and they're brainwashed in this new type of theology out there and they worship their professors instead of worshiping Christ. And they become very proactive in these movements from these seminaries, which could be all kinds of different things today, where one of the worst ones is tearing down the authenticity of Scripture. That's one of the first things that I've seen happen that's been a real problem in churches where young men come out of seminaries and the first thing they're doing is they're questioning the inerrancy of Scripture. They say there are gaps in the Bible. They, they question the authenticity of the miracles. They don't believe in a six-day creation. They don't believe it's a young earth. They believe in God, but they believe in theistic evolution. And they get real charged up with this. And it actually works because it's very, they've become very successful in some of these very big mega churches. You try to stand for the truth and you try to do what's right. Satan does everything he can to destroy it. But you see at the time, Paul, who was Saul at the time, he was very respectful. He, he followed Gamaliel. And not only did he follow Gamaliel, he took his teachings to a whole nother level to the point where he actually wanted to go he wanted to get permission and written orders to go to Damascus and persecute more Christians. And that's what he did. Pastor. Well, the was the one that Wasn't that Peter and John? Yep. Okay, that's, that's where we read about him saying, if it's of the Lord, it's of the Lord. You have, you know, we listen to the Lord, and that's how they were released. That's an excellent point. But we see here the conversion of Saul. Paul goes back to that. He goes back to that momentous occasion where he was on the road to Damascus, and he was ready to go, and he was ready to persecute more Christians. And so he comes back and he says it again. He says, I persecuted in verse 4 this way. Who was the way? What does he mean by the way? Right? That's back in the day what Christians were referred to. Remember, Christ says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. They were referred to as the people of the way. The people of the way, that was a title for those Christians that followed Jesus Christ, whom the Judaizers detested. Now remember, when it comes to a works-oriented theology, I truly believe that when Christ says, many will come to me and say, Lord, Lord, I've done this in thy name. I've done, I mean, I'm paraphrasing, I've done that in thy name. They will come to me and say, I've done all this. And I will say, be gone from me, for I never knew you, you workers of iniquity. Those are the ones that tried to get into heaven on their own merit, by their own works. And you can pick out churches all around, and that's basically what their platform is, is our works. Why are, it's amazing, I was listening to a message a few days ago, and I listened to it again yesterday. Back in 1969, there was a, a pastor who was a professor that he went around for several months, and he was, he was part of what was called the Evangelical Explosion, and they were supposed to ask two questions to hundreds of people. When they go, this was kind of like a, um, this, this was kind of like a, 
some kind of like a, um, opening question or something in order to try to be able to open up the platform to witnessing the people out on the street. Two questions were, um, the first one is, do you know that you're going to heaven? And if you do know that you're, you're going to heaven, well, as part of that was the first question, how? Second one is, if you get to heaven, <coughs> when you get there, and the Lord asks you why I should let you into heaven, what's your answer? And so the percentage was 90% of the people answered it. All 90% answered it with a works-oriented response. Why do you think you're getting into heaven? Yes. Why? Because I do good things. I've done good things. And one of the biggest statements that was made, and it's still a really high number today from what I understand, people believe they are justified by dying. They believe that they automatically go to heaven just because they die. Justification by death. Isn't that a very, very sad, very serious problem? And so... The question was, if, if I, why should I let you into heaven? If the Lord were asked, they would say, well, because I'm a good person. Well, I've done this. I've, I've helped the poor. I've contributed to my church. I mean, I've done this. I've done it. Most 90% of them, none of them said because of the blood of Jesus Christ and his righteousness, that I have no righteousness, which is the correct answer. I deserve to burn in hell. That is my natural habitat. And only because of the blood of Jesus Christ, blood of Jesus Christ, am I not there? So Paul says, I was binding, and he says, I went after the people of the way. I persecuted this way unto the death, binding and delivering into prisons both men and women. And also the high priest doth bear me witness, and all the estate of the elders, from whom also I received letters unto the brethren, and went to Damascus to bring them which were there bound unto Jerusalem for to be punished. He was taking them right out of the temples. Out of their churches, he was taking them right out. And you know, when you first read the account of Acts 9, you think that maybe he was just bringing them in. He was incarcerating perhaps the heads of the families, and he was just bringing them in, and he was examining them, and then maybe they would let him go or whatever. No, it says here he was killing them. See, you don't read that in Acts 9. You read it here. He said, I was consenting unto their death. They were literally killing Christians. They were murdering them. And he thought he was honoring the Lord by murdering them. What did, Pastor, what did Pastor Britton talk about last week? What did he say towards the end of his message about the problem with the reprobate societies all down through the ages? What were they doing? Yes. They were murdering their children. He talked about the Phoenicians and the Persians. He talked about the Romans. And he said they were literally sacrificing their children and they were murdering them. And that was one of the reprobate... Um, one of the reprobate uh, uh, symptoms of what they were going through. And we think about that and we're like, whoa, whoa, we're, we're fine in America. We're great, aren't we? We murder more kids than you combine, most of them combined in all the centuries with abortion. And it's going to get a lot worse here next year if they, if they fudge these votes and that referendum doesn't go through to protect these babies. These babies are going to be murdered outside of the womb up till 28 days out of their birth. And what is anybody going to do? 28 days, we, this, we will be one of the four states that babies will be born. They, for 28 days, the mother can make up her mind to have the baby aborted on a gurney in the hospital. 28 days after birth. And it's actually going up for referendum. And so far, if you read, if you go in and you read the high percentage of our legislation in Congress, they're all for it. All but 37% are for it. 
murdering the babies. Well, Paul reiterates something that we've, we've talked about before. Paul says, I went to kill them. I brought them out of Jerusalem. And it came to pass that as I made my journey and was come nigh into Damascus about noon, something major happened. Well, we see Saul. We start out, where do we see Saul for the first time? Very first time, what was he doing? And he doesn't make any bones about how bad he was. That's right. He was the coat hanger for those that were stoning Stephen. Right. Stephen, a faithful evangelical evangelist deacon. Precious man, young man. Maybe he had a family. We don't know a lot about him. Perhaps he just got married. Perhaps he had Sunday school classes. Perhaps he worked in the church all the time. I'm sure he did. He loved the Lord Jesus Christ with all his heart. And if you remember, we're going to go over that a little more maybe next week. He gives a beautiful message. And he goes back and Stephen talks about Moses. He talks about David. He talks about the Old Testament history and the sacrifices. And he says that in front of these people. What do they do? Instead of kneeling down and thanking the Lord Jesus Christ that they heard the gospel, they pick up stones and they murder him. Paul is the one. Saul of Tarsus, he's their coat hanger. And he's standing there and he says it over and over again. He felt horrible about that. He consented unto Stephen's death by holding their coats. And this great persecution against the church at Jerusalem. He held their cloaks of the killers of Stephen. And this is the first sighting of Saul. At the time, the state of the church, the laity was scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. And there was great persecution. Fled, and they fled into the countrysides. The laity was driven out with the blessing of apostles at the, at the time preaching the gospel as they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and representing the great commission with Paul. God said he even too was lowered over the side of a, of, a, of a building. Remember, he was lowered out and he was basically told to go back to go back to another area. I can't remember where he went now. I, just, I don't know, it's kind of foggy in my head. But he was told to leave because they were coming after him to kill him. And not only did he have... The people that were against Christ coming after him, he still had the Christian church. They were very, very worried about him because he was public enemy number one. Can you blame him? Saul was seeking havoc on the church. He was a one-man wrecking machine. You could call him a pre-Hitler Hitler. He was hailing, dragging out people with great force and violence. Here he says that again, men and women. He committed them to prison. He murdered them. He, he breathed death to the Christians with great heat and vehemence. And wherever he came to them, he lashed out to them in his pride. We see in Psalm 22.3, The Lord shall cut off all flattering lips and the tongue that speaketh proud things. I mean, verse, at Psalm chapter 12, verse 3, The Lord shall cut off all flattering lips and the tongue that speaketh proud things. Who have stead who have said with our tongue, will we prevail? Our lips are our own. Who is Lord over us? And Paul, Saul of Tarsus, would find out shortly who is Lord over him. He was zealous. He seeks the chief high priest to expand his territory and get permission from the synagogues in Damascus and the chief high priest to eradicate Christians in Damascus. We see that Paul once goes to Damascus. It's a town, I think that's very interesting, Damascus, a town where Christians most likely had dispersed 
two from the preaching and teaching of the apostles, and maybe even Stephen and Philip. This Damascus had been divided and cursed by God, as we would find in the writings of Amos. Amos chapter 1, verses 3 to 5. Khaleesi, could you like look that up and read that, please? Amos 1, verses 3 through 5. The gospel was going to Damascus one way or the other. Go ahead. Thank you, Lisa. You look at that. That's Damascus is involved in these cities. There were great curses upon Damascus, and the Lord still cared for them. And he was sending the apostles and the disciples out in order to bring the gospel into these churches, into these towns. And Paul was one of the ones at the time he was going against them. He was trying to go in and try to bring the Christians out. But then he winds up being one of many of the apostles and all that go in and he give the gospel. So Paul has something very, very incredible happen, and he reiterates this, and he falls to the ground, and he hears this voice saying unto me, Saul, Saul, why persecuted thou the temple? Anybody catch that? Anybody see that? Right. What did we read Wednesday night, those of you that were here? What did Jesus say to Peter? John 21. Right. Look at that beautiful personal pronoun that he uses. You ever have a question about the church? You know, you have a lot of churches that say that they are the ones that need to, they need to interpret scripture. They're the ones that need to do all the work. They're the ones that need to be prayed to. But they're not the church. See, when Christ says to Peter, feed my sheep, feed my lambs, feed my sheep, what he's saying is, I am the church. And he's telling Saul of Tarsus here, you're going to persecute my people in Damascus. You've now seen the end of your reign of terror. You go after those people in Damascus, well, now you're going through me first. You've met your match. And when you go there, (coughs) you're not going to touch a hair on their head. Because I'm going to do the one thing to you that is the most wonderful thing that can happen, but it's going to be really hard with you. And I'm going to save you. I'm going to save you, and I'm going to make you fishers of men, and I'm going to send you out. <coughs> and the Lord says, why persecutest thou me? He says, I am the church. Paul says, and I answered, who art thou, Lord? And he said unto me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom thou persecutest. Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And back in Acts 9, he says, Why dost thou kick against the pricks? That's what he said. And if you know anything about what happened there, we've talked about it before. Remember, that's kind of an allusion to what happens to an ox cart. When the oxes, they get the oxen, they get mad, and they actually take their hooves, and they beat against these two great big spikes that come out. And those spikes keep them from destroying the carriage. And basically, when they get mad, they do that. And Paul's basically saying to the Lord, saying to Paul, Why are you as dumb as an ox to come after my church and to persecute it and to come after me? 
And that's what he's basically saying. We say that there had been a great dearth in that town of Damascus, and Saul would have none of it at the time. Saul gets up in the morning, he prepares his men and his donkey, probably loads up his weapons of mass destruction, points himself in the direction as a flint for Damascus. He sees that Shekinah cloud of glory, and it's a blinding light. You realize that at that point, he went into Damascus blind. He had no eyesight at that point. And then he says here something you don't read a whole lot in Acts 9. He says, there were others that were around me that they, they, I heard what was going on, and he says, they didn't hear it, basically. And he said, I was blind, and I was taken into the town, and a man named Ananias grabbed me, and he started helping me. And remember, Ananias had said to the Lord, this guy's as bad as he can be. And the Lord says, you go, you do it. You just do it. And, he, and then Ananias did it. You take care of Paul. We see this appearance of Christ to Saul, this appearance... Of, to Saul, in all the glory, he sees the glory of Jesus Christ. Saul was not, he was not on some monastic retreat searching for Jesus. He was not a seeker of Christ. And I have heard, I have read accounts saying, no, actually in his heart, Saul was actually seeking. He was deciding to follow Jesus. It just wasn't his time that he was getting there. You know, you just got to love the old Baptist song, I have decided to follow Jesus, no turning back, no turning back. No, you didn't. Neither did Paul. There's absolutely no evidence at all that he decided to follow Jesus. Christ knocked him right off his donkey. <laughs> he, right, he knocked him right off of it, literally, and blinded him. And that's what happened. And Paul is bringing this back to the attention, and he's standing there now talking about it to the Judaizers, and he's basically saying to the Judaizers, don't you remember this? Don't you remember what happened to me? You know Gamaliel. You know what happened to me. And the thing that I have that you still lack in your, all of your works, all of your works-oriented theology, is Christ found me. Where is Christ in your life? And that's basically what he's saying. There is shown round about him a light from heaven. What is one of the I am statements in John, the book of John? I am the light of the world. It is amazing the effect that our Lord has on us when he saves us. It is an incredible light that's turned on. It's a light that is so bright we can't miss it. And we see things clearer and we do not walk in darkness. Isaiah 42, 6 says, I, the Lord, have called thee in righteousness and will hold thine hand and will keep thee and give thee for a covenant of the people for a light of the Gentiles. Paul was already foreordained as being a light to the Gentiles, he and Peter. Isn't that wonderful? John 8, 12, then spake Jesus again unto them, saying, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. In John 9, 5, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Isn't that wonderful to know that Christ is the light of the world? You look out today, look at the beautiful sunlight. Isn't it amazing that big orange round thing that hangs overhead is called the sun? And it's, it's, it's a wonderful display and a wonderful symbolism of the, the light of Jesus Christ. It was necessary that Saul should see Christ. Paul would be an apostle of Jesus Christ and Christ alone would train him. One of the qualifications of an apostle, and most certainly the primary qualification, is to have been physically in the presence of Jesus Christ. And right here is the account of that. 
Paul in 1 Corinthians 9.1 says, Am I not an apostle? Am I not free? Have, not see, have I not seen Jesus Christ our Lord and not ye my work in the Lord? If I be not an apostle unto others, yet doubtless I am to you, for the seal of mine apostleship are ye in the Lord. 1 Corinthians 15.1 Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also you have received and wherein ye stand, by which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you first of all that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He was seen of Cephas, then of the twelve. After that, he was seen of above 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto his present, but some are fallen asleep. And after that, he was seen of James and all of the apostles. And last of all, he was seen of me also as one, of one born out of due time. Isn't that a wonderful testimony? Paul can say, I saw him. He was with me. How many people could look back and Maybe they were the ones that actually at the time wanted to crucify Jesus and wound up maybe, maybe getting saved later and said, I could have walked with him. I could have seen him. I could have like talked with him. And Paul, Paul remembers this. What a historic transcending meeting with the Lord of glory. The Shekinah cloud of glory, the light of the world. Paul sees this light of the world. Well, he goes on to say, and I answered, Who art thou, Lord? And he said unto me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom thou persecutest. And they that were with me saw indeed the light and were afraid, but they heard not the voice of him that spake to me. We'll pick up on that next week. Our Heavenly Father, we thank thee and praise thee, Lord, for this time thou hast given us, Lord, to see the, to talk about the light of the world. We thank thee, Lord, for thy transcendent majesty. And we pray, Lord, that thou wouldst fill our hearts with gladness today to hear thy word as Pastor Olson is here to give us the word and to teach it to us. And I pray that our hearts and our minds would be open to receive it, that it would bore into our soul, and Lord, that it would encourage us and strengthen us to be witnesses of thee. I ask, Lord, that thou wouldst just have mercy upon this congregation, have mercy upon all those, Lord, that are sick and are having problems, Lord, physically, that thou wouldst heal them. And I pray, Lord, that Thou wouldst have mercy upon this country that it's turned its back on Thee. And I pray for the little handful of Bible-believing churches today, Thy church glorious, that Thou wouldst bless them, bless their work, and that many souls would be saved. And all these things we ask in Thy name we pray. Amen.